Tell me what these people are doing. So to the right of us, we've got the digital team. To the left, you've got our entire uh, training, recruitment. These are the folks who work day to day with the candidates themselves. Hey, I'm John Harwood, and that's Stephanie Shriok, the president of EMILY's List, taking me inside a central force behind this year's midterm election campaign. EMILY's List recruits, trains, and finances Democratic women candidates. In this Speakeasy podcast from EMILY's List headquarters in Washington, Shriok explains what's driven thousands of them to raise their hands and run, and how EMILY's List is helping them challenge Donald Trump's Republican Party. We have had now over 36,000 women come to Emily's List, raise their hand and say, I want to run. At all levels. At all levels. And the truth is, most of them don't know what they're running for yet. They maybe don't know when they're running. But they have gone over that first major obstacle that we have seen over and over again with potential women candidates, which is just that that desire, interest, maybe even belief that they could do it. Tell me how much of this moment that we're in, the sea change moment you're describing, is about Clinton and what happened to Clinton in 2016, and how much of it is about Trump? I think it is the one-two punch of, the, of those two things. There was, going into November 16, so much pent-up energy an emotion of women, a lot of women across this country, whose dreams were wrapped up in Hillary Clinton winning that election. And I saw it all over the country when I traveled. Women would well up with tears in their eyes going, do you think this is going to happen? And so afraid to show the emotion for fear that it wasn't going to happen. And so that, that was already built in, and then it didn't happen. And then she lost to that guy, like, of all people who is not qualified, who said such disgusting things about women, who clearly disrespects women, to that man. And that one-two um, punch, as I refer to it, really did, like, cause this ig ig just ignition of energy across the country. And that's what we're seeing. That's what we're seeing right now. Tell me how you see your mission in this uh, campaign year. For over 30 years, this organization has been committed to electing pro-choice Democratic women to office. And for most of those decades, we have gone out and recruited and sat down with women at their kitchen tables, sometimes begging them to run for office. I now feel like that was all in practice <laughs> for this moment, because what, what we have here is not just a wave of women coming in, but I believe a sea change moment. Uh, with the number of women who are raising their hand wanting to run, and we're here to do all we can to back those women up. If you um, have a process that produces a woman uh, candidate who loses but may run in the future, uh, is that a trade-off worth making as opposed to a man who might be able to win the race because you're building for the future as opposed to winning a Democratic seat right now? Yeah, I mean, our first goal is always to win right now. We really like winning here. Uh, and so we're going to put our investment and energy. But on the margin, if, yeah. you, if, if it's about uh, making a, a, a short-term sacrifice for a longer-term goal, is that okay with you or not? It's a, it's a, it's a secondary benefit to the yeah. process, right. which is why you know, if it were easy for women to run and women to win, 
we'd have a lot more women in office mm -hmm. right now. It's still a challenge. It's still really hard. Uh, easier than it used to be. A lot easier than it was when Barbara Mikulski, our first, our first candidate ever, stepped up to run. It is easier than those years. But I still have candidates who, I mean, if you're a woman running with young children, you can't imagine how many times you get asked, so who's going to take care of your kids when you win? I want to know how many men get asked that question. I've got a great, great candidate uh, in Michigan for Governor Gretchen Whitmer who's been asked, so are you going to run as a woman? <laughs> I mean, these are, the, these are the things that still today, this is in 2018. You know, this, <laughs> this, is, this is now. Uh, we're still breaking through a lot of, a lot of old culture mm -hmm. here. And that, that takes intentionality, and that's what we do here. Now, you have a reputation for being pretty tough-minded. Tell me about the process that you go through with a potential woman candidate. How do you vet um, how viable that person is, whether, whether she's worth supporting by Emily's mm -hmm. list, and, and you know when you have to say, no, sorry, can't do it? The hard part comes in, you know, one, does, does the candidate have a story to tell? and an understanding of the district. We'll take the long shots, but we've got to know that there's something there that's going to get us to a potential win. Uh, and that's when the endorsement comes, if we see that that candidate's not doing the work. She's not you know, doing the call time to do the fundraising, or she's not going to the, all of the events in the evening to talk to folks, to, then we may not get into that race. I'm looking at these pictures of Emily's list backed candidates who became governors yeah. of their states. Um, when you look back on the history of the organization, is there an example or two of women who you guys made the tough decision not to support and they made it anyway? Uh, we have supported every one of those pro-choice Democratic women who serve, um, oddly except for one in her first race, who was and that, that was Nancy Pelosi, because she... Because she, came, because she came in right before we started doing house races. <laughs> what do you think and what do you advise people as a matter of strategy to do about situations like Connor Lamb found himself in mm -hmm. when he was running? You want a Democratic majority. Yeah. He's trying to win a very Trumpy district. <laughs> and he says in the campaign, I don't support yeah. Pelosi for speaker. Uh, how do you feel about that and what do you advise women candidates in more conservative districts to say to that question? We need to win. So if you feel like you're in a district that you need to make those, those types of positions, you got to do what you got to do to you win. You don't care. We just have, we have to win. We have to take back the majority and that's really critically important. Uh, do you, you know, have any women candidates right now who are saying that they don't support Pelosi as speaker? Uh, I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure. To be honest with you, I'm not but sure. But it wouldn't about bother that. you if, if there were. I, no, it's you know we, we're running women in a whole variety of districts right now across the country. You know, some in suburban, exurban districts, some in rural districts, and they need to make the best choices uh, to win those districts. And we're going to back them up. Uh, we think she's been a very, very good leader, um, but we also know that the Republicans, you know. For good or bad, they made a decision to demonize her. How much do you see Me Too as part of this moment? Uh, I think it is a big part of this moment. This whole moment started 
November of 2016, that night where Hillary lost and he won. And then those women marched. Millions of women marched. Empowerment and community came together in that march. And Me Too comes out of that, comes out of that recognition that I can, I can speak my truth and not get shamed for it because they're going to be with me. And that's exactly what happened here. It is the beginning of a sea change. You got Al Franken elected to the Senate in 2008. Okay. Do you think that the Me Too movement uh, went too far in his case, and do you worry about it going too far in other cases? I think this, this is a time of the beginning of a cultural change, you know, that women feel the that they're able to say what happened to them is very hard. And for decades, if not for centuries, uh, they weren't allowed to do that. Or if they did, they were shamed to it. Did Franken get a raw deal? I think he, you know, got caught up in a moment uh, with, you know, with some women who, who stood up and had experiences, real experiences but was with it him. I mean, as you think about it, it, did you think it was unfair? You know, I, um, I mean, it's hard because this is the other thing I think for so many of us in this moment. Um, we are going to have friends who maybe didn't do everything exactly right, but they're still friends. And we're going to have to work with that as well. Uh, There's I mean, some people I think, who, who blame, say, Senator Gillibrand and others who are, you know, people yeah. that you would be al aligned with who think that they threw him overboard um, in ways that was not fair. Well, I think the moment was, was so difficult for everybody involved, for those women senators who were in the center of it all, the pressure that was on them to make the decision. And I don't know if folks really understand that. It wasn't on their male counterparts. And it was from you know, their younger staff, their voters, the press were on top of them. You, know, you also had the Alabama Senate race. There's yep. a lot of things going yep. on at that moment, and uh, and Senator Franken you know, made made his decision uh, in in the thoughts of he had to take care of the people of Minnesota. And when he felt like he wasn't going to be able to do his job for the people of Minnesota, he resigned. Was it disappointing to you how it how it went down? It was, yeah. It was hard. It was really hard. But do we expect any of these to be not hard? It's a difficult time. I've heard this year described as the year of the angry, white, college-educated woman. Uh, and the numbers for uh, Democrats among college-educated women are very strong. Do you have any concern that you as an organization or the Democrats as a party uh, continue to have a problem with um, arrogance, with looking down on people, uh, uh, Elsewhere on the political spectrum, what do you think? I mean, I, I certainly hope not, and I've, I've never thought about it that way at all. Uh, I mean, I just find that the women candidates that we have running right now, uh, and they are diverse in geography, in race, in profession, uh, in life experience, are the bridges to all of this. You know, our candidates are focusing on understanding their communities and making sure that everybody is heard, which is why I think that there's an interest as well in seeing women run and ultimately get elected, because I think we do bring a certain level of 
let's bring everybody together in yes. this conversation. I think that's incredibly important. And that is who we are as a Democratic Party, a party that really, I mean, if you look at our vote, you know, 59% of our Democratic voters are women. And that is, I think this is a moment where we just these women candidates could really bring a big change. When you think about your uh, allocation decisions, resources, mm -hmm. limited amounts of money, t staff time, and everything, how do you calibrate now versus the future? That is to say, people running for federal office versus people running for city council, state legislature, all the lower level things that become the feeder um, jobs for Congress. It, it is true, and we, we have had to make a big uh, expansion here at Emily's List at our state and local work this year. Uh, not just for the future, but because those that are serving in the legislature today are absolutely rolling back policies that are are they're devastating women and families in these legislatures. We've got state chapters like, here today. That's exactly yeah. right. We've got our, our our state organizations here. This is this is a very serious moment in these legislatures, and we more than tripled the size of our staff that recruits for legislative seats alone across this country. Encouraged by Whereas, Virginia. Uh, uh, what yeah, and there? we, you know, and we were engaged in 16 of those House of Delegate races. 13 of those women run. 11, one, 11 of the 15 pickups were Emily's List candidates. Hmm. Like we know that we've got we've got the formula here to get those women up and running, uh, and to ensure they've got good staff around them. We're now working with 1,200 women, 1,200 women, in legislatures. That's on top of our wanting to take back the House. That's on top of the Senate work. It's on top of the 10 women we've endorsed for the governors. You got any legislatures that you think are ripe to be flipped? I do. Uh, many states, many, many chambers that can flip over. I mean, look at the Florida Senate, the Colorado Senate, the Minnesota Senate. Uh, and in places like Florida where, you know, a lot of Democrats would say, well, the Senate's in play, the state Senate's in play, but oh, that House is impossible. I got to tell you, there wasn't anybody who thought that the Virginia House of Delegates was going to be close at the end of the day. If this all starts moving, our direction as Democrats, those legislative seats in, the in these state houses, they're going to move fast. So our job is to make sure that there's good, strong Democratic women running in those seats, and that's exactly what we're doing. If Democrats gain the, the, the number of seats that they need to win the House and the Senate, is that going to be mostly victories by women candidates? I can tell you this. Our goal here at Emily's List, and I, and I said this to Leader Pelosi, Democrats need 23 seats to win back the majority. We would like to deliver those 23 seats right here at Emily's List. Some good men can win too. That would be great. They can be the icing on the cake. We want to deliver the cake. That's it for this edition of the Speakeasy Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And be sure to subscribe to Speakeasy on Spotify, Google Play, or Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to rate us and leave a review. We appreciate all your feedback. Talk soon.